This week, the latest result from the Large Hadron Collider. But is it the shake-up that physics needs? Let's hope that, that they will find something that's, that deviates from the standard model, because that's where the, the interesting physics actually begins. And the unconventional life of neurologist Oliver Sacks. Uh, he managed to knock off a bottle of Equivit in the course of reading, and this is the heroic bit in the course of reading James Joyce's Ulysses, which says to yourself, this is not someone who does things by halves. Plus scientific successes and struggles in India. This is The Nature Podcast from May the 14th, 2015. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Noah Baker. The Large Hadron Collider is getting ready to power up again after two years of upgrades. But during its downtime, physicists haven't been idle. They've been analysing data from its last round of experiments. Nature This Week publishes some results from a team of thousands at the LHC, and as Adam Levy has been finding out, what they really want to do is kill the standard model, the best theory of how our universe works. The Large Hadron Collider, or LHC, is one of the grandest scientific experiments ever created. It's a 27-kilometre-long underground loop, Its job is to accelerate two beams of particles close to the speed of light in opposing directions and then smash them together in a head-on collision. This may seem like wanton destruction, but the aim is to create new particles and study never-before-seen interactions. What the LHC finds could transform how we think about our universe. For decades, our best theory of particle physics has been the standard model. The standard model explains all the subatomic particles known and three of the four forces. Leonie Merck, one of Nature's physics editors, joins me in the studio now to talk about a result that has a bearing on the standard model. Welcome, Leonie. Uh, It seems like the standard model can explain a lot about our universe. Is there anything that it isn't able to explain? Most prominently, we're not quite sure how gravity ties into the standard model. There's other things, for example, um, dark matter. We know there is, or we we suspect there is dark matter, but... But the standard model doesn't really have a place for it. Um, also, the standard model predicts that there's antimatter. But why do we see so much more matter than antimatter? It's a very good question. And the, the standard model doesn't really account, account for that. Those seem like pretty big emissions. So the LHC is currently looking for anything that doesn't match up with the standard model's predictions. This would help us go beyond the standard model and work out some kind of new theory. How big a deal would a result like that actually be? Um, let's hope that, that they will find something that's, that deviates from the standard model, because that's where the, the interesting physics actually begins. Any sign of physics beyond the standard model would be a sensation. Well, one candidate that physicists have been talking about is the decay of a particle called the BS meson. The LHC can make BS mesons by colliding particles together, and physicists now want to know whether the BS meson could decay into particles called muons. The standard model predicts that it can happen, but it doesn't exactly happen all the time, does it? I think the exact number is four in every billion. You, you need to produce those B mesons, which is very, very difficult in its own in its own right. They're just very weird particles. They're not like electrons or protons that you have uh, in, in, in regular matter. Okay, so those are pretty slim odds. But if we saw muons being created from BS mesons more or less often than this, it could help point out where the standard model's going wrong and how we need to expand it. So two of LHC's particle detectors, the LHC-B and CMS, 
have teamed up now to search for this decay and to try and quantify it. Leonie will be back with you in a minute, but let's turn now to Marco Bettler from the LHCB detector team. I asked Marco why this search is so exciting. People have been looking uh, for this decay since uh, over three uh, decades. If they had seen it at a rate that was much higher, then that would be have been very interesting in the sense that that would be would have been a very clear clue that uh, the standard model is not enough, and uh, that uh, you have to to have something on top of that to explain nature. But your results show pretty much exactly what the standard model says we should get. That there's about four decays per billion. Isn't this a bit of an anticlimax? As an experimental physicist, what I was really really glad about and excited about was to see these decays, if you want. And then, of course, if we had measured it at a rate that would have been incompatible with the standard model, uh, that would have been the enormous cherry on top of the cake, of course. Well, I also spoke to Joel Butler, who's at the CMS detector, and asked him whether he found it surprising that we hadn't found any experimental hints of inconsistencies with the standard model. I don't know whether it's surprising, it's maddening. There are so many ways in which the standard model could could be wrong. And yet everywhere we've looked, it seems to be what's happening in nature. Nature is telling us that the new physics doesn't disturb the standard model in some sectors. We're sure that sooner or later we'll find where it does. And these results, which you would say are negative, are really quite positive because what you're doing is you're eliminating options and narrowing things down to the truth that you're seeking. That was Joel Butler and before him Marco Bettler. Leonie, back to you now. This isn't the first time that we found a new result and that it's been completely compatible with what the standard model says should happen, is it? Almost everything that we found so far is compatible with the standard model. I mean, you don't only have to look at, at very high energies to find, to, to search if you, in the search of, of deviations of the standard model. But everything we found so far, I think, has been quite confirmatory in the sense that it, it confirmed the standard model. Well, when I spoke to the physicist Joel Butler, he seemed pretty confident that eventually we'll find some hint, some clue but where do we look for that clue? Where do we go now? The LHC's uh, answer to that, I guess, is higher energies. So we very much hope for this new run to to uncover unexpected physics, unexpected experimental results. I mean, what happens if we keep on looking at more decays and finding things to higher precision and everything is consistent with the standard model? I mean, even if they only find that the standard model holds up, that's a result in itself, isn't it? It means that the theories have to, theorists have to go, <laughs> go back home and <laughs> uh, come up with new ideas. But yeah, let's hope that there will be some inspiration. <laughs> that was one of Nature's physics editors, Leonie Mook. And before her, Adam was talking to two of the thousands of collaborators from the CMS and the LHCB detectors. Coming up, a memoir from Oliver Sacks, the beat poet of the science world. But first, it's time for the best science from elsewhere. It's the Research Highlights with Adam Levy. A species of bird has outperformed monkeys in a test of understanding abstract concepts. The Clark's Nutcracker was shown pairs of pictures and got a reward for spotting matching images. Many animals can do this, but maybe they're just learning which pictures give a reward, rather than understanding that the pictures must match. 
So, researchers changed the set of pictures halfway through the test. Even monkeys struggle with this, but the nutcrackers could still spot matching pictures. In the wild, these birds have to remember where they've stored thousands of nuts for the winter, which might help them with tricky tasks like this. For the full paper, see Biology Letters. The activity of human genes can vary with the seasons. We've known for a long time that gene expression can vary on a 24-hour cycle, but this is the first time researchers have seen it vary over the year. In fact, a quarter of all genes show seasonal variation in their expression, which may explain why some diseases, like some cardiovascular and psychiatric disorders, affect people more at certain times of year. It could also help time vaccination programs when they're likely to be most effective. The paper's out in Nature Communications. In late 2013, the latest in a string of countries got ready to send a spacecraft to Mars. About 51 missions have been undertaken to Mars, and the failure rate is over 50%. This is a spokesperson for that country's space programme, talking just before the launch. China and Japan attempted it but failed. India is very near its destination of reaching Mars. If India does it on its own, it'll be very, very significant. And they made it. The Indian Mars orbiter reached the red planet on its first attempt. So India is no longer a place of snake charmers. This is a country which can do sophisticated interplanetary travel and do it all on its own. India has had some stellar scientific successes, the Mars orbiter among them. But it's also a place of challenges. Almost 100 million people live without safe drinking water. Infectious diseases are a big public health scourge. India has the world's highest rates of TB and among the highest malaria cases. Is science doing enough to help with these too? To get a handle on India's scientific gains and its biggest struggles, I called science journalist TV Padma, who's written a piece for Nature about science in India. She first told me about India's proudest scientific moments, including that Mars mission. It was the first time a country made it to the orbit in its very first attempt, which was a little um, surprising even for us. But there are other missions that have also been doing pretty well. Uh, for example, India had announced a nanotechnology and a nanoscience mission in 2007. And in April, uh, the Indian government cleared a national mission on supercomputing. And under this mission, the country plans to build a high-speed network, which is expected to make a difference to its projects in climate change and weather prediction. So there are these areas where India has been doing well. Why is now a good time to write about Indian science? Well, this month, May, marks the completion of one year of a new Indian government led by the Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Now, Narendra Modi took over with this image of a man who gets things done, a guy who can just go around fixing problems and who can see the country's economy develop. Against this backdrop, it was a good time to review what exactly happened in Indian science. More so because Indian science is not just seen as an esoteric activity, but 
as an activity that has a crucial role in the country's development. So far, we've talked about a Mars mission, nanotechnology, supercomputing, and none of those are really to do with on-the-ground problems. But has India been doing well at um, developing its own science base to solve problems that the country has? Well, I would say there's been a bit of mixed success on that front. India's um, success in generic production has gone a long way in affordable health care and affordable medicines in the country. Having said that, there are a lot of typically tropical neglected diseases where the country could have taken a lead in drug discovery and research, and it has not really made a huge dent in new drug discovery in these uh, tropical diseases. India ranks appallingly in the Human Development Index. Its rank is about 135, I think, in the latest index out of 187 countries. And it has not yet been able to solve its basic problems of sanitation, of maternal and infant mortality, of drinking water. The Department of Biotechnology at least has begun to acknowledge some of these problems and pay attention to them. They have similarly a grand challenges program in the sanitation sector. And hopefully these kind of activities could help change some of this. Given this overall picture of science in India, what's happening at a policy level then to shore up science? Well, funding has remained static. Now, for over a decade, we have been hearing promises from successive governments and prime ministers about how they would like to increase the uh, funding to about 2% of the gross domestic product. But this funding has remained static at 0.8%. That was science journalist TV Padma on the line from New Delhi. There's a Nature special on India this week. Find Padma's article and many others at nature.com slash news. Oliver Sacks is quite the overachiever. A highly respected professor of neurology, he's been practising for more than 50 years. In his spare time, he's published numerous best-selling books covering topics spanning all of neurology, from hallucinations to migraines. But his latest book is not about his field. It's about his life. It's a memoir, the publication of which has been made even more poignant by the news that in February this year, Sachs was diagnosed with terminal cancer. The book is called On the Move, and it's been reviewed in Nature this week by journalist Tim Radford, who's come into the studio to tell me a bit more. I noticed you moving there. Yes, in response to really a memory of Joni's. Uh, it's a strange thing. This is a book that, in which everyone will find what they want to find. It's not a perfect book. My definition of a perfect book would be a book in which you wouldn't want one word more or less. And... I would have liked a little less of some things and a lot more of others, but um, that's not important here. What's important here is that it uh, it enables people to confront his life uh, when, with a little context from themselves too, because we all of us have our own experience of adventure 
So Sachs was born in Britain, but he spent much of his life working in America. He he was a Londoner who went to America. This is this itself is not unusual. I've actually heard European scientists say that they'd never met another European scientist until they went to Berkeley. So going to America itself wasn't the surprise. He didn't, however, go to America as a scientist, although that was a, a subtext. Science was a subtext all the way through this. He goes there as a young man in search of adventure. I have a copy of the book in front of me, and on the cover is a young Sachs astride a motorcycle in a leather jacket, looking, you know, altogether ruggedly handsome and maybe even rebellious. Not necessarily something people would usually associate with a professor of neurology. We all wanted to look like James Dean or Martin Brando in the 50s and 60s. Now, what the adventure in his particular case was his determination to, to, to not only do things but overdo them. So he, it's not enough for him to, to, to enjoy weightlifting. He actually has to break a Californian record. Sachs actually talks about this in the book quite a lot, doesn't he? We've, we've actually got some excerpts that he's read himself. Here's the first one. This was to serve as my introduction to the powerlifting world. A weightlifting record is equivalent in these circles to publishing a scientific paper or a book in academia. When he writes, he, he writes at enormous speed and sometimes far too much. There's one story of him presenting his tragic and stricken publisher with a, a manuscript of 400,000 words, which has to be boiled down to about 60,000, which is the kind of, kind of ideal length for a Sachs book. After working in the migraine clinic for a year, I went back to England for a holiday. And to my own great surprise, proceeded to write a book on migraine over the course of a couple of weeks. It spilled out suddenly without conscious planning. All of that, uh, the drinking, we all tried drinking. And when we were 16 or 17, um, uh, I gave up after two glasses of sherry, but uh, he managed to knock off a bottle of Aquavit uh, in, the, in the course of reading. And this is the heroic bit in the course of reading James Joyce's Ulysses, which says to yourself, this is not someone who does things by halves. I wonder if this this sort of um, excessive nature that, that, that he has in his personal life is something that's reflected in his science that he's done as well. I don't think I'm qualified ever to talk about neuroscience. I find it, I find it one of the great puzzles that um, uh, this is the science that happened while I wasn't watching. I don't know how much uh, he has contributed to our understanding of neurology itself. I think that will be continuously re-evalued. But what he has done is he's actually changed the attitude of the patient. Nobody now, anyone who's read Sachs, could ever think of the patient as simply a case, you know, a strange and bizarre case of a, of a hostile and possibly sad um, victim. When he writes about patients, they become humans and they become people who are as, as good as and as interesting as himself. It strikes me that a lot of thing, these things that we're talking about, this sort of wild, sort of hedonistic character, this, these ex- adventures that he goes on, the experiments with drugs and alcohol, it all sounds very much like a bit of a beat poet to me. And, you know, this, this book is called On the Move, which seems strikingly like On the Road, Jack Kerouac's famous book. I, in, the, in my review, I actually, I, actually um, uh, I think I suggest that Easy Rider breezes into the world of John Steinbeck. It reads like excerpts from a novel that was never actually written that reads particularly like a kind of 50s novel in which the hero or the protagonist of the novel becomes a bullfighter and a truck driver and a poet. There are hang on a moment bits of this book. It's not a full biography by any means. It's a series of carefully chosen self-portraits 
from from aspects of his life, we're grateful that he's told us what he has. Why, why do you think that that Sachs has written this this memoir now? There, there, there are two reasons. One is that he clearly is the sort of person who can't stop writing. Over a lifetime, I've written millions of words, but the act of writing seems as fresh and as much fun as when I started it nearly 70 years ago. I can warm to this. I, I too understand that, although not to the degree that he, he describes. The other one, of course, is that he has... He has clearly reached the end of something. Uh, I, I hope it's not the end of writing, but it's certainly going to be the end of an active weightlifting life. I say in my review that there's a valedictory note to this book. It, 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 re it represents a kind of farewell to all that, a goodbye to all that, to quote Robert Graves. And I, perhaps people have this urge to uh, sum up a life somehow in words, in which case he's done it very readably indeed. That was Tim Radford, also featuring excerpts from On The Move, read by Oliver Sacks. Tim's review of the book can be found at nature.com forward slash news forward slash books and arts. And Sacks' memoir is hot off the press in all good bookshops now. News time now and joining me in the studio, Richard Van Norden, news editor. Hi, Richard. Hello, Kerry. There's been some news in the UK recently about the election that happened and we now have a Conservative majority government for the first time in a while. Yeah, scientists weren't expecting to know who their science minister would be and who the government would be by this time. But it all came out surprisingly well for the Conservatives, an outright majority. So David Cameron returning as Prime Minister has named all of his cabinet and all of his ministers and we can now speculate on what this means for research in the next five years. Now, science, research, they weren't really platform issues in this election. Everyone just talked about austerity quite a lot and balancing the books. Um, but there is some news, as you say, on science and on climate change because ministers have been appointed for each of these positions already. We're only a few days in. Yeah, on science, the new science minister is Joe Johnson, who listeners will probably know of as the younger brother of Boris Johnson, the mayor of London, himself now a member of parliament. Joe Johnson is well-connected, he has the year of George Osborne, the treasurer, so he might have some influence on the, on the UK budget, which could be important because no doubt in the Tory government, we will see a focus on austerity, which may mean that the science budget, which was already frozen for the last five years and fallen in his real terms, probably means that it won't go up. However, the Tories do understand the importance of science. So what we'll probably see, our pundits suggest, is a focus on the economic value of science and a push towards the economic applications of research. And for that reason, they have not found it necessary to appoint an actual scientist. Right. Johnson's not actually a scientist. And his dad actually told a radio station in London that his son knew nothing about science. But he is renowned as being very clever, certainly able to get to grips with science and higher education in his brief. Now, interestingly, it's just come out as I speak that he won't be attending cabinet, which means he won't be attending the regular meetings that Cameron holds with all his influential advisers. His predecessors, Greg Clark and David Willits, did go to this meeting and that meant there was always a voice for science and higher education 
So there's a worry that by demoting this post, the Tories will somehow signal that science or higher education is not so important to them, or Johnson won't have enough influence. So we'll have to see how that plays out. And it may be that Johnson's superior, as it were, the new minister for the Department of Business, Innovation and Skills, which is where the science minister sits, Sanjeev Javid, might play that role. He might speak up for innovation at cabinet meetings. But it is a, a bit of a shock when previous science ministers have attended cabinets. The other post, of course, that scientists and researchers are particularly interested in has to do with climate change and energy. A solid choice here, Amber Rudd as Energy and Climate Minister. She was already a climate change minister, which is a more junior role before this election. And she's already spoken of the need to seek a strong deal at the UN climate negotiations in Paris. And that pledge was actually also in the Conservatives' pre-election manifesto. Uh, They also promised to encourage expansion of nuclear power but also to encourage expansion of fracking for shale energy, which Rudd is also in favour of, and to end support for onshore wind farms, which they see as too expensive. So there is a fear that the previous government, we had a coalition of the Tories and the Liberal Democrats. It was widely thought that the Liberal Democrats, uh, who held the position of this energy and climate change minister with their Davy, it was widely thought that they had sort of forced or persuaded the Conservatives to give more attention to renewable power. Now we don't have the Liberal Democrats, so maybe we'll see what happens. But let's be fair to the Tories. Their manifesto has clearly shown that they are strongly um, persuaded by the need to act on climate change. Okay. well, there's been a lot established in the the first few days of the new government, and I'm sure there'll be more updates as um, the five years of Conservative reign progress. Now, we're moving on to a quite startlingly different topic um, now, and we're going to look at how some researchers who flew a plane through a thunderstorm found some antimatter. I feel like I've just randomly selected those words for that sentence. This is kind of an insane story. Joseph Dwyer, who's at the University of New Hampshire in Durham, flew an aeroplane, a Gulfstream 5 jet plane, into some thunderstorms. And in the middle of the thunderstorms, they say that they found a massive cloud of antimatter of positrons. We know that cosmic rays plunging into the atmosphere can then hit other energetic particles and can produce short-lived showers of gamma rays, these highly energetic particles. We also know that storms produce positrons and gamma rays can also be created when positrons, antimatter, annihilate with an electron, matter. So Dwyer's team wanted to find these gamma rays, which could have come from cosmic rays or from antimatter, but they accidentally flew into a thundercloud when they meant to be flying into what looked like from the radar profile to be the coast of Georgia, but actually turned out to be some thunderstorms. So that was a bit of a shock for them. And he said the plane rolled violently back and forth. But while this was happening, they also picked up three spikes of gamma rays and energy which has to be from a positron annihilating with an electron. So within this thundercloud, they calculate that a very short-lived cloud of positrons one to two kilometers across surrounded the aircraft within this cloud. They actually did this flight in 2009, six years ago, and it's taken them until now to publish a report on what on earth was going on. To try and figure out whether these positrons were just some kind of near-death experience of flying through a thunderstorm, I bet. So uh, it's very unusual, isn't it, to see records of antimatter. So what on earth were they doing in the middle of a thunderstorm? It may be that the positrons were originating from cosmic rays, these these particles from outer space that come in, and we know that they produce positrons and also gamma rays. And what's really puzzling is why this cloud of positrons surrounded the aircraft rather than being a light drizzle. 
as is everywhere in the world all the time. And perhaps there was some mechanism that somehow steered the positrons towards the plane. Perhaps the wings were electrically charged, producing extremely intense electric fields around them. Or perhaps the wings were electrically charged and that intense electric field caused within the vicinity of the plane electrons accelerating and producing gamma rays and then the gamma rays might hit other atoms and generate an electron-positron pair which annihilates. You can see from this cascade how complicated it gets. The answer really is they haven't the foggiest for why they would see this cloud of antimatter. Nice weather pun. Thank you very much. So close to the plane. And they're actually, they want more observations of the thunderclouds. So the US National Science Foundation is going to fly a particle detector on an A-10 warthog, an armoured anti-tank plane that can withstand the extreme environment inside a thundercloud to try and work out whether they can see more of these antimatter clouds. I should say that other physicists say that the, the estimate of the size of this cloud of positrons is not convincing and maybe it was smaller than this one to two kilometre estimate. So this observation and near-death experience has thrown up more questions than answers. All right. Well, Richard Van Norden, thank you very much. And for more on antimatter clouds and uh, clouds of politicians, as those two stories suggest, go to nature.com slash news. That's all from us. We'll be back next time with a real-life take on Breaking Bad. I'm Noah Baker. And I'm Kerry Smith. <laughs>